0: Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1, and as you turn there, let me kind of remind you where we are in the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is about finding freedom in the true gospel. So we're, we're talking about, Paul is talking about, here's the true gospel, and here's the, the freedom that we find in this gospel message, this, this true gospel contrasted with false gospels. And in the first section of the book of Galatians, if you'll remember, Paul is talking about the source of the true gospel. Where does this true gospel message come from? And he's just told the readers of this letter that the true gospel comes from Jesus Christ himself. And now, as we look at verses 13 and 14 here in Galatians 1, he's going to begin to defend that rather bold claim. Here's how, Paul is saying, here's how you can be confident that this gospel truly is from God. So if you would, if you would stand with me, if you're able to, uh, as we read just a little bit here from Galatians, I'm going to go back a couple verses to help us get the context. Remember, we're going to, Paul has condemned those who would preach a false gospel and then we come to verse 10. I want to kind of give verses 10 through 12, and then we'll look at verses 13 and 14 as he begins to defend this bold assertion that this gospel message is a message from God himself. Verse 10. <clears throat> For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then we come to verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I. For the traditions of my fathers. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. And Heavenly Father, we do ask your your grace upon us as we look at these verses. We pray that we would think carefully about who you are, about the gospel message, and about our own lives and whether they, as we've already sung this morning, reflect the, the, the transformation that the gospel is supposed to bring about in our lives, that you bring about in our lives through your grace. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Personal testimonies can be an incredible tool that God uses to show the the power of the true gospel. Personal testimonies, it is stories of, of faith, can be incredibly powerful tools that God uses to show the the truth of the gospel. Throughout church history, we can think of examples of people who have shared their stories of faith, and as God has has used those stories, people have responded to the truth of the gospel, as they've, they've heard the stories of how God has worked in other people's lives. Examples of this throughout church history. Think of Augustine. Augustine's writing kind of at the, around 400 A.D., and Augustine is talking, he writes this very famous work called Confessions, and he talks about his life before he placed his faith in Jesus Christ, before God drew him to himself. And then he talks about how he heard the gospel and responded to the truth of the gospel, placed his faith in Jesus Christ, and then he talks about his life afterward. And, and listen to what he, he says in this, this testimony in his Confession. Again, he's writing about 400 A.D. He says, Late have I loved you. Beauty so old and so new, late have I loved you. And see, you were within me, and and I was in the external world and sought you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely created things which you made. You were with me, and I was not with you. In other words, Augustine is saying, Look, I, I... was in the world, and I was, instead of loving you, I was loving all these things that you had created. I was trying to find my pleasure and my joy in them. This is the past, he says. He says, "I, I sought these lovely things, but these lovely things kept me far from you, though if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. And then he talks about his transformation, you called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness you were radiant and resplendent you put to flight my blindness you were fragrant and i drew in my breath and now pant after you augustine is saying look I, I used to try to find my pleasures in the things of the world the things that you had created instead of looking to the creator i was looking at the created things and i did all these things trying to to find joy and try to find satisfaction but then in your grace you called me and now I find my delight in you. That's the power of the gospel transforming what Augustine loved and where he was trying to find his pleasure. And this this work, his confessions, drew many people, by God's grace, to the truths of the gospel. And we see this in our own lives as well. Many of you have read biographies of, of Christians who have talked about their transformation. They They were... Running away from the Lord, they were finding pleasure in the world, and then God, in his grace, drew them to himself. They placed their faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and now they are different people. Every time we do baptisms, right, we hear stories of of God's grace in people's lives. Here's who I used to be. I recognized that I was a sinner, and then by God's grace, I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. And it's, it's so amazing to watch this happen each time we share testimonies. Everyone's story is different, and yet everyone's story is the same, right? The way in which God drew them to himself may be different. The circumstances before Christ may be different, and yet God drawing them to himself and the change that takes place as they trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation is, is profound, and it's, it's beautiful, Think of stories of, of young children, of, of older saints. We heard the story last year of a, the precious young girl in our church who was Muslim and then placed her faith in Jesus Christ, and now the, the Christ that she used to dismiss has become the cornerstone of her life. That's, that's phenomenal. It's amazing, this transformation that takes place. Testimonies, these stories of God's grace, can be these tools that God uses to show the power of the gospel, and some people would say, well, my testimony is not all that dramatic. You know, I was a young kid, and, you know, I wasn't doing, doing drugs, unless you count children's cough medicine. I mean, there was nothing amazing in my life before in terms of profound sin, and yet, and yet here's, here's what I want us to think about this morning. Every Christian's life, every Christian's life should be a powerful story of the truth of the gospel. Every Christian's life should be a testimony, a a proclamation of the power of the gospel at work within a life. And this morning we're going to look at Paul's story. In fact, over the next few weeks, months, as we kind of look at these first two chapters in Galatians, we are going to explore a lot of Paul's story, a lot of Paul's testimony we're going to begin this morning looking at him before he became a Christian. Next week, we'll look more at his conversion. But as we look at his life story, we're going to see this, this truth of the gospel that he's trying to show to the Galatians. And as we look at his story here in verses 13 and 14, we're seeing that the power of the gospel, how the gospel transformed him. In fact, there are many aspects of how the gospel transforms our life. But here we're going to see two things, two, two things that, that changed in Paul's life that were signs that the gospel was true. And these are things that should be true in your life and my life as well. Because again, many of us would say, you know what, uh, this was a story, my story of placing my faith in Jesus Christ from many perspectives would not be considered all that dramatic. But all of us, all of us as we look at our life right now should say, my life reflects the power of the gospel by God's grace. As I talk with people who do not know Jesus Christ, and as they look at my life and they hear my story, they should hear the story of one whose life has been powerfully and is powerfully being transformed by the gospel. Again, we're going to see two things in Paul's life, two signs that, that he's saying, okay, remember, I'm, I'm saying that this gospel came from God. I'm saying that this gospel is from Jesus Christ. And now in the rest of chapters 1 and 2, Paul is trying to say, here's how you know that what I'm saying is true about this gospel coming from Jesus. And this first thing that he's, this first evidence that he's, that he's giving is about the testimony of his transformed life. And there are two signs, two, two truths that we see about his life that illustrate the power of the gospel at work, that show the truth of the gospel. And these, these should be two signs that we see in our life as well. Here's the first thing that we should see in our life that proves the truth of the gospel. Number one is this. The actions, attitudes, and thoughts I used to believe were moral. I now confess as sin. So the actions, attitudes, and thoughts I used to believe, or at least I told myself I believed, were moral. Now that I've, be, that I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ, now the power of the gospel is at work within my life, I now confess as sin. So let's, let's look at verse 13 together, and let's see what Paul is saying about who he used to be. And we'll kind of look at a couple of passages in Acts as we go through there. So if you want to put your finger in Acts, maybe Acts 9 or so, uh, that, that will help us as we kind of go through this. He says this, verse 13. You've heard of my former life in Judaism, so you've heard, you're aware of what happened in my past. And of course, the people in Galatia knew. Paul would have told them, but they also would have heard stories about Paul, right? Remember in Acts chapter 9, as, as Paul is on his way to Damascus, that famous road to Damascus experience that he has, he's, he places, his, he sees uh, Jesus Christ, he responds to the gospel, and then God in chapter 9 tells Ananias, who's in Damascus, he says, hey, I want you to go talk to Paul. And Ananias says, are you sure about that? Um, I've, I've heard about Saul, as he's called at this point. He says, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Later in the chapter, whenever the people hear Saul preaching in the synagogue, they're amazed. And they say, look, isn't this the guy? Isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? Hasn't he come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests?" People had heard about Saul. And Paul begins the story of who he used to be. He says, look, you've heard of my, you've heard about me. He says, you've heard of my former life. Some translations say my former manner of life. And that word that he uses there is used to describe his morality, what he believed about right and wrong. So he's saying, look, you know who I used to be. You know what I believed about what was right and about what was wrong. You know about how i lived and conducted myself you know about what i did he says how i persecuted the church of god violently and he uses a verb there that describes ongoing action in the past so my my he's, what he's saying is my moral life who i was was defined by an ongoing persecution of the church i persecuted the church of god violently if, if you're there in Acts, maybe turn back to Acts 7, the end of Acts 7, so almost Acts 8. And remember in Acts 7, we, we hear the story of the first martyr, Stephen. Stephen is, is brought up on charges of blasphemy because of his profession of Jesus Christ. And he is, is stoned. Verse 58 says, they cast Stephen out of the city and they they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments. And now here's our first introduction to Saul at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And verse 1 says, Paul approved. And there's this, this... not just kind of tacit approval, but active approval of what's just taking place. He approved of Stephen's execution. It says there arose a great persecution against the church. And then verse 3 of Acts 8 says, Saul was, was what? He was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He says here in verse 13, you know about who I used to be. You know my former manner of life. You know my former sense of morality, how I persecuted the church of God violently. And he also says, You know why I did this. I did this to destroy it, I was trying to destroy the church. He's open, he's forthright about what he had done, and he understands why he did it. Now, here's here's what I think is important for us to recognize. Paul didn't do these things because he had no sense of morals. Paul wasn't a person who considered himself immoral. He wasn't some cartoon villain going, I'm going to destroy the church. He believed that he was a moral person. He believed that the actions that he was taking were, were actions done to please God. In fact, listen to what he, what he says in, uh, later as he describes what he used to do in Acts 26. He's, he's, he's giving his defense and his testimony to King Agrippa, and he says, I myself was convinced, I was was certain that I ought to do, that's a moral word, I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, in other words, when there was a, a decision about whether these people should be put to death, I voted for death. I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Why did Paul persecute? He didn't persecute because he considered himself an immoral person who wanted to do evil. He persecuted because he believed that he was a moral person doing what was right. He believed this is what he ought to do. Then what happened? What happened to Paul? There was a conversion. Paul radically changes. Again, Acts 9, as he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, verse 1 says. It says that he, he's approaching Damascus, verse 3, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So here he is. He's on his way to persecute the church. And he he hears this voice from heaven. This sees the light, hears the voice and says, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, wait, what? And he says, who is this? Who are you? And what is the response? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And suddenly, all of Paul's sense of right and wrong is is transformed. You see, it's not that Paul was a person who didn't understand justice, who didn't understand fairness, who didn't understand mercy, who didn't understand wickedness and evil. He believed those things were real, but his morality wasn't based upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And you can imagine how he feels as, he, as this, this crushing realization takes place. The foundation for my morality has been all wrong. Now Jesus Christ becomes The one whom he's been persecuting becomes a cornerstone for all that he believes about right and about wrong. In 1 Timothy, he'll say this about himself. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. And he says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. recognizes that something profoundly needed to, had needed to change and now has. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 4. He talks about our old self and, and this old self that's, that's passed away, the, the old self we need to put off that belonged to our former manner of life. First Peter one eighteen, Peter writes, Knowing that you were, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold. This change, in fact, look at verse 13 here again of Galatians 1. This change is, is so radical, it's so profound, that he describes Judaism, this, this, this thing that he'd been so immersed in, he describes it as his, as his former life. You've heard of my former life in Judaism. He doesn't consider himself part of Judaism any longer. Here's what I think you and I need to understand when we're not in Christ, it's not that we're as immoral as we could possibly be. When we're around family and friends and people that in a relationship who don't know Jesus Christ, it's not, it's not that those people are immoral. I remember when I was uh, much younger, maybe some 20 years ago or more, I was, I was talking with a friend and we were talking about uh, this this girl that he was dating. He was a person who professed to be a believer, and, and she was not. And and I said, I, I he he said something about the relationship. And I said, look, you know, um, a person who's not a believer can't love. And he said, wait, wait, what? I said, well, and and I, I realized even as I said this, I said that doesn't sound right. <laughs> and I was thinking theologically. I know that our hearts have to be transformed by the gospel, but but I, I said I said something that was in that statement that was very offensive, and and not true from what we see in Scripture. God's common grace allows all humanity to understand a sense of rightness and wrongness. Those who are not believers can act in ways of profound love. Those who are unbelievers love their children. They they love their family. They love their parents. Those who are unbelievers lay down their lives in very loving, sacrificial ways for, for people that they love. People who are unbelievers lay down their lives, have laid down their lives throughout the centuries. For those who are Christians, those who are unbelievers by God's grace can experience those things that God calls us to experience in terms of morality. But, and here's the crucial thing. The change that needs to happen to us is more profound, more dramatic, more foundational. The the ultimate foundation of our morality must be Jesus Christ. And until that happens, we're not who we need to be and we don't think about morality rightly. And there are numerous examples of this. Unbelievers, those whose foundation for morality is not Jesus Christ, speak of the world, sometimes speak of evil in very moral ways. So, for example... And, and and just like Paul, as they speak about immorality or evil, using moral words, they, they honestly believe before God or before whatever it is their, their their own autonomy, they honestly believe that they're 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 pursuing rightness. So, for example, an unbeliever again using moral words might describe evil. They might talk about freedom. You know, I support freedom, but really they're talking about enslavement to immorality. Or they might talk about the, the uh, ethical nature of choice, but really they're talking about death. They might talk about the, the value of hard work and perseverance, but really they're talking about accumulating wealth that, that Jesus, if he's for your foundation, tells you the, the love of is a danger to your very soul. I was reading an article this past week uh, by a, a man, uh, Charles Camassee. He's writing an article in Commonwealth Magazine, and and listen to the, the title of the article. The title of the article is Better Dead Than Disabled, Better Dead Than Disabled, The Normalization of Infanticide, and uh, Camusy is arguing against this this normalization of infanticide that he believes is taking place in our culture, in Western culture. And Camusy kind of chronicles, look, this is this is how this has happened in our culture. We've gone from a, a culture that allows uh, children to be killed in the womb to children being killed outside of the womb. And talks about how this has been normalized. He talks about a moral philosopher named Peter Singer and how Peter Singer argued that, hey, if if abortion is okay and Singer believed that abortion was okay, why wouldn't infanticide also be okay? Because uh, for a, a, a person to really count as a person, they need to have self-awareness. An infant doesn't have self-awareness, and so that it should be okay for us to uh, destroy them as well, especially especially if their life uh, doesn't look like it's going to have uh, physical or, or mental value in the way that, that uh, Singer would de- describe value. Now, Kamisy, of course, finds this offensive, reprehensible. And listen to what Camacy says. Camacy used to try, when he was arguing with people who would say they were pro-choice, who believed that abortion in uh, its various forms was was permissible, he used to say that he, he would talk about Singer's argument, and he would say, well, look, you believe infanticide is... Wrong, right? Well, yeah, I believe that's wrong. Well, here's why. If you believe that's wrong, you should also believe that abortion is wrong. But Camacy says this. He says, I I talked with Peter Singer about this. This, I've argued with Peter Singer about this. And Singer and I have discussed the likely results of this strategy of mine. And he is convinced that pro-choicers are more likely to become pro-choice for infanticide as well as abortion than to question their views on abortion. Do you you understand what Camacy is saying there? He says, I, I used to, if a person says, well, I'm against infanticide, but I'm okay with abortion, I used to say, well, look, here's why if you're against this, you should also be against abortion. But he says, singers argue, look, it's easier for me to take a person who's pro-abortion and also make them pro-infanticide. At campus, he says, I used to think he was right, or I used to think he was wrong, now I fear He's right. Apart from Jesus Christ being our foundation for why something would be immoral or immoral, and his authority in terms of why life has value and the dignity of human life, apart from that being a common understanding, a person can honestly believe, can honestly believe they are arguing for a a moral goodness and talk about infanticide. They can believe they are morally arguing for infanticide. There's many examples of this in our culture. It doesn't have to be that extreme of an example. I was talking with a friend from from high school, and he was he was talking about uh, sexual of freedom and as, as we talked about sexual freedom, he, he was using moral words of, of choice and, and freedom and allowing people to experience what they desire to experience. And I said, look, you know what Romans 132 says. Romans 132 says, though people know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. I said, doesn't it scare you that potentially you are giving hearty hearty approval to something that God may judge people for that I believe you in your heart know that God will judge people for. People honestly believe as they describe Christians and here's here's the point. People honestly believe as they describe Christians that to follow Christ would be immoral. They use words to describe Christians that have moral undertones, right? Haters, fascists, and then, of course, Christians are not immune to different sins, right? We don't want to presume that. But the point is, they, they believe the very act of following Jesus, the very act of doing the things that Jesus would tell us to do, in, its, in and of itself is immoral. What's the answer? What's the gospel? What happens as we're converted, as we're transformed? We now say okay that the things that I used to believe were were moral the, the basis for my morality myself has now changed and now the the basis for my morality is Jesus Christ himself he is the cornerstone and and what he says is right I believe is right and I'm now placing my faith completely in him to instruct me and teach me and to change me because I recognize that in myself, I'm a sinner. My, my body is affected by the reality of sin. My mind is affected by the reality of sin. My ability to, to, to think cognitively is affected by sin. All these things are affected by sin. The actions, attitudes, and thoughts I used to believe were immoral were were, were moral. I now confess as sin. Here's two questions of application for our for us as we think about this. Number one, when it says that I, I now confess this is sin, how, how does this confession manifest itself? So actions, attitudes, and thoughts I used to believe were moral, I now confess this sin. What does it mean to confess something as sin? How, how does that manifest itself in my life? Well, it means there's a, a worldview shift especially where I believe my values come from. There's a new foundation, new bedrock upon which I build my understanding of, of everything. There's also, there's also, as I, as I confess things as sins, there's, there's now a new sense of shame as I think about who I used to be. I think about my relationship with my kids. Sometimes as I'm, uh, trying to be just this amazing, fun dad that I always am. Uh, I, I do things that, that bring my kids some embarrassment, right? So it's hard to believe that. Uh, I know my friend's kids think I'm the cool dad, but the reality is sometimes I do things that embarrass my, my children, and, and you can just see the, the kind of bringing down of the head. Like I, maybe when I look back up, he'll be gone. Uh, but no, there he is still doing that stupid thing he was doing two minutes ago there's that sense of shame. There's a, there's a, I don't know if I should say this. Um, there's a box somewhere in my house of, of old love letters that uh, Whitney and I have, have written. And uh, we read these from, you know, 25 years ago or whatever. And we, if we look at them, there's this sense of embarrassment, like, oh, I cannot believe I was that sappy, right? Um, I can't believe I was that silly, you know, but. There's some embarrassment there. That's that's not the type of shame we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is is a shame as we think about sin. As we think about how in the world could I use to do these things or walk in this way? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15.9. He says, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. In First Timothy he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. There's a turning from sin. There's a vocalization of sin. I confess these things. These things that I used to do, that I used to think were okay, now I, I look at those things and I say, I, I cannot believe that I did those things. I cannot believe that these things were seen as, as acceptable and now I'm, I'm confessing these things are sin and I'm turning from them and I want no part of them. That's what happens in the heart of a believer. Now, here's the second question. What if I don't see this type of change in my life? What if if there's not this understanding of morality? What if my morals look just like the morals of everyone else around me? If your morals and your sense of rightness and wrongness and those sorts of things look just like the hearts of those Who have not been transformed by the gospel, who do not say that Jesus Christ is the foundation for their morality, there's a problem, right? Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, don't fool yourself. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These these sexual sins, these these sins of of greed, these sins of lust, these sins of lack of self-control, all of these things are are characteristics of those who won't inherit the kingdom of God. He says, and such were some of you, this is past tense, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, if you can look at yourself this morning and say, look, actions, attitudes, thoughts I used to have, I still have. Actions, attitudes, thoughts that other people have in the world that I don't have, that uh, I, I shouldn't have, I still have, I don't consider them as sin. There's a profound problem because the reality is you may not be a person who's been washed, sanctified, justified through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Actions, attitudes I thought and thoughts I used to believe were moral, I now confess as sin. By God's grace, my my heart has been transformed and now my testimony, my life, my the story of my life should be proclaimed to other people. Christ is my cornerstone. That brings us to the second, the second sign, the second demonstration here in verse 14. Paul says this. He's saying the pursuits, pleasures, and passions I used to count as valuable, I now consider worthless. The pursuits... The pleasures, the passions I used to see is so valuable. Now that I am in Christ, I consider worthless. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, I was advancing in Judaism. Beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Again, he uses that same tense to describe his advancing. This is is what used to characterize his life. This is who I was in the past. My connection with Judaism was very close. These were the traditions of my father's. He's talking not just about the the Old Testament scriptures, which he'll continue to speak of positively, but he's talking about all the different interpretations and the, the Pharisaical school that he was a part of and all these legalistic traditions that had been added to the faith. He's saying, I was advancing in those things. I was, I was continuing to become more prominent in this community. In Acts chapter 22 is... Uh, Paul is talking to the Jews in Jerusalem. He gives kind of this, this encapsulation of who he used to be. He says, I'm a Jew. He's talking to the Jews in Jerusalem. I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm, I was born in Tarshish. I was in Cilicia. I was brought up in this city. I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. I was zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I was, I'm a Pharisee this Gemalil, he mentions, was a famous rabbi. He was a, he was a teacher who taught very, uh, very strong things to his to his pupils. He was a, a Pharisee, a rabbi who was intent that his disciples know the word of God, and that he was intent that they not just know the scripture, but they would know all the different different traditions that accompanied the Scriptures, and then they would apply them. And he was actually known for applying them in a very uh, kind way. So, for example, he was concerned that women who were being divorced by their husbands were treated well. There were some traditions that had been handed down that he kind of fought against in order to protect women, to protect those who were poor, those who were foreigners. He was actually a very uh, gracious rabbi from the accounts we have of him. In fact, the account that we have of him in scripture in Acts five, he is a voice of moderation in the Jewish council. So Paul is telling people, look, I'm I was advancing in Judaism. I was I was a Jewish Jew. I was a, a Pharisee, I was under this this famous teacher, this rabbi, and I was advancing. Now, how did Paul advance? How did he advance? He lived as a Pharisee. He says this in Acts 26.5. In Philippians 3, he talks about all the things he had going for him as, as a Jew. He says, oh, I'm not putting confidence in the flesh, but if we're going to play the flesh game, I would do really well. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, you want zeal? I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Paul was a person who pursued his religion with zeal. And how did he express his zeal? He was a persecutor of the church. But what happens at Conversion. What happens? Listen to what he continues to say in Philippians 3. He says whatever gain I had I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, he says in verse 8 of Philippians 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as as rubbish, as garbage in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having, this is key, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The Righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's what happened in Paul's life Paul is zealously pursuing Judaism, Pharisaicalism. He says everything you can do to be a Pharisee, he's doing. And in terms of zeal and pursuing these things and advancing what he believed was so valuable, he is, he's more zealous than the rabbi who trained him. The rabbi who trained him is kind of like, hey, you know, guys, let's just see where this Christian thing goes or this thing called the way. We'll just kind of see where it goes. If it's from God, it'll go somewhere. If it's not, it's just going to peter out. That's not where Saul, who becomes Paul, is. He's like, no, man, let's go after this thing. And he is more zealous than his rabbi. Everything he can do— to pursue this this pharisaical way he's he's pursuing. And then something profound takes place. He sees the surpassing value of Jesus. And what he realizes is this. He realizes that the path that he is on, the path that he is pursuing, is not a path that will lead to joy. In fact, all these things that he's doing, all these things he's placing confidence in, his, his Jewishness, his his rabbi, the, the person he was trained under, the, the laws that he follows, the regulation, he all realizes, huh, none of this is going to get me the righteousness that I need. All of this is garbage. He uses the term rubbish. It's, it's just a bunch of junk. This thing that I've invested my life in is absolutely worthless. Now, how can a person come to that conclusion? It takes something radical like the gospel, like God working through his gospel to convince Paul of the worthlessness of the path that he's pursuing. And now, God convinces him by his divine grace of the value of Jesus Christ. The righteousness that you so desperately desired can't be found the way that you are pursuing it. The righteousness that you so desperately desired cannot be found in yourself, but where? A righteousness righteousness that doesn't come from yourself He says, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And now, and now Paul has a completely different value system. Paul says, it is no secret. You know what my former life was characterized by. And now you know what my current life is characterized by. These are two totally different value systems. And the difference is Jesus Christ. The value that I place upon Jesus Christ is infinite. There's there's nothing more precious to me than the person of Jesus Christ, and you can compare my former life and my current life and see that I believe that to be true. Now, you see the obvious point of application for you and me as well, right? Can we say, along with Paul, yeah, yeah, the things I used to view as valuable, the pursuits, the pleasures, the passions that I used to see as so valuable, I now say that they're worthless. Would our neighbors and our families and our, our friends, would they look at our lives and say, you know what, I can tell that the value that, that Daniel has as ultimate is the value that he places in his relationship with Jesus Christ. his career, His hobbies, his interest in running or fishing or in whatever, all those things are secondary in terms and garbage compared to the value of Jesus Christ. Can people in my life say that? We pursue things that seem so valuable. Before we're Christians, we pursue things that seem so very, very valuable. But as we come to recognize the value of Jesus Christ, we recognize that in comparison, these things are utterly worthless. The same must be true of all genuine believers, that we recognize the value of Jesus Christ, that there's a radical reconsideration of the value of everything in our life in comparison with Jesus Christ. How does this manifest itself in our lives? It means that we're givers, right? We give of our physical things. As, you know, Galatians 6 is going to talk about sharing the things that God has given us and, and uh, the, the way in which, in which we give. And the heart of a person who's been transformed by the gospel is a heart of a giver. It, it's not just of the physical things, though, right? It's, it's giving relationally. We're generous in our service and our graciousness. We're generous in our forgiveness. These are things that that reveal the heart of a person who's been transformed by the gospel. What if I don't see this change in my life? What if I look at my values, and I look at the values of the world, and I recognize man, we value the same thing. I'm just as passionate about my 401k. I'm, I'm just as passionate about my, my physical things. I'm just as passionate about the same accolades of the world, the same career advancement. What if I look at my values and, and the values of the world and I, I can't see a difference? Beloved, that's a problem. It's something that should cause our hearts some, 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 some godly Fear we look at our lives and we we say, I I don't see a difference here. What should we do? I I think we need to cry out to God. God, I see the beauty of your son, Jesus. I believe in his infinite value and beauty. and, And Father, I want to value him as supreme. Change my heart. Give me a heart of repentance. Allow me to see you working in my life. I want my heart to believe in the value of your son, Jesus. And I want my life to reflect what my heart believes. Not every story of a Christian coming to faith in Jesus Christ is worthy of a, uh, of a book, maybe, or of a, a movie treatment. Yeah. The story of, of me uh, coming to faith in Jesus Christ would not make a very riveting 90-minute movie. You know? But every Christian life at this moment in which we find ourselves should be a story of the truth of the gospel, a powerful story of the truth of the gospel currently being, being lived out in our lives. Paul is saying, and here in Galatians 1, he's saying, this gospel comes from Jesus. It's not man's gospel. It's not a fake gospel. And, and the Galatians are say, yeah, yeah, prove that. And Paul says, okay, proof number one, here's who I used to be and here's who I am now. And here is how it's different. The actions, attitudes, thoughts, I used to believe were moral, I now confess as sin. The pursuits, the pleasures, the passions, I used to count as valuable, I now consider worthless. That's proof one. Brothers and sisters, may that proof of the power of the gospel be manifested in your life and my life as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for the power of the gospel at work in our lives. We Confess your Son, Jesus, as valuable before all things. And, Fathers, you bring things into our life this week as we are tempted to put other things above the value we place upon, upon your Son, Jesus. Please convict us. Please prevent us from sin. Please allow our lives to, to show others the infinite worth we place upon you through our faith in your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his matchless name, amen.